You're listening to the Bride Chilla Podcast, helping bride chillas and groom chillas plan their wedding minus the bullshit. One podcast at a time with your host, Alicia McCormack. Welcome, welcome, my lovely bride chiller and groom chiller friends. Alicia here. This is the Bride Chiller Podcast. It's all about wedding planning, but all the stuff that surrounds wedding planning that isn't tables and chairs and invitations. I am really happy this week to be sharing the show with an expert, a doctor, a proper doctor too, uh, a psychologist who is going to help us work through this whole idea of perfectionism and the idea that we are striving for something that doesn't necessarily exist. David Purvis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being on Bride Chiller. Oh, thank you, Alicia. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have you uh, on the program, David, and I, I just called it the program like it was some sort of BBC radio show. How funny. The program. You've, you've, you've upped my game because I'm talking to a proper person. Well, I'm, I'm pleased to be able to help. <laughs> Not that any of my other guests aren't proper people. All my other guests listening, I love you all. But I wanted today to talk to you, David, about perfectionism and this idea that it can really stress people out. And I go on and on about, I have this saying that it's, it's fuck perfect, basically. Uh, and I say that this idea that we are so worked up and so driven by this thing that doesn't exist... Tell me a little bit about your idea about perfectionism. How do you see it from a professional standpoint? I run a clinical practice. So these days I'm in private practice. You know, I used to be a, a consultant in the NHS and whatnot. But, so now it's private practice. And I would say that virtually everybody I see has an element of perfectionism that's causing a problem. Now, really? Yeah. Um, I, I generally see people who, like, everybody I see is lovely. And a lot of them are really successful, you know, in all sorts of spheres of life. And as soon as they start to tell me about uh, how hard they work, how stressed they are, or how self-critical they are, or how it's important that things are done correctly, I start to suspect that they're running a little perfectionist program in the back of their head, <laughs> which basically says, if it's not perfect, it's can you guess what it is? If it's not perfect, it is wrong. No, not perfect. A bit more, a oh, bit more, a bit, bit more. Can't just do it's, a negative. You failed. You failed. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's exactly it. Perfectionism is a is a kind of a black and white way of thinking. And there's basically when I'm when I'm talking about this with a client, I, I put a P on the board, I draw a little line, and I put a an F at the other end. It's perfect, or it's failure. Now. If you set that up as in, in your kind of life as a, as a sort of a binary thing, right? It's this or it's that. Mm. And you're, therefore, you're always striving to be perfect. Um, what's going to happen is that as you become more and more successful, as, you know, the, the range of things that you do expands, as you get offered more and more work, at, you know, whatever job you do, you've got to work harder and harder and harder to maintain the space around P, around perfect, because the threat of bouncing to failure is too strong, right? So what happens is people end up working, working, working. They're, they become really, really overworked in a sense. And then all of a sudden something happens. And it can be a little thing, you know. Like um, someone once said, <laughs> they went to the cinema and they bought their, their little girl an ice cream. And she said, this isn't the one I wanted. And that was sufficient to turned them into floods of tears, you know, because it was just like oh, the last straw and they felt like such a failure. But of course, 
it's not right, is it? I mean, they're not a failure. It's just a thing. It was just the last thing and they couldn't take any more. And then they bounced to feeling like a failure. And if you're not careful, it stays there for a while. And that's, of course, depression. So it's really, uh, you know, perfectionism, I say, is it's good up to a point. And then after a point, it's uh, a problem. So we've got to think about it in terms of that. It's, everybody who's a perfectionist, it's not a problem yet. They'll say, well, actually, if I didn't do things really well, you know, I'd be sloven because it's always black and white, right? If I didn't do things really well, you know, it'd be, be rubbish and it wouldn't be any good and I wouldn't be able to work and people wouldn't like me and people wouldn't accept me. It's not that at all. It's just a black and white way of thinking. So it, it can be good up to a point, but it can also be then be quite damaging. What do you think about control? Because when I'm hearing you say this, it comes back for people who are striving for a certain thing. And as you said, this could be in the workplace, it could be in relationships, it could be in weddings. But it's the point where you lose a bit of control and it all sort of falls apart. And and when you were talking about the ice cream story, I I thought about when – I've been in certain periods of my life where I've been really stressed and it just takes one little thing that is normally wouldn't even bother me. And then you just have that full mental breakdown and you're like, what am I crying about an olive or something for? What is this sense of losing control? And especially when you feel really wound up and, and tightly strung, why does this happen? Well, you've, you've, <laughs> we're talking about perfectionism, and now we're talking about emotional control. These are two biggies. They're really big. <laughs> That's um, how I like to roll here. I like to bring them all out there, David. <laughs> yeah. It's big stuff. Um, well, <laughs> you can't be a perfectionist unless you're a control freak. Mm-hmm. Sorry, but that's just sort of, I say control freak. I say it lovingly. I say it with love. Sure. Um, which basically means if if you if it's important to you that things are perfect, you also have to maintain control. Otherwise, you can't guarantee that it's perfect, right? And bear in mind, if it has to be perfect, it's important. It's a really, really important thing. So what happens is people do something that I call false control. Um, typically, uh, someone who is a perfectionist would try to control the external world. And so you try to control people, circumstances, things, all sorts of stuff, you know. And as I say that, you can recognize and you might pipe up and say, well, yeah, but you can't control other people. <laughs> you might say that, but it doesn't stop people trying. Mm. And so when you say uh, wanting to be in control, <clears throat> what people are really doing is they're trying to control their external circumstances. And that, of course, is another thing which is impossible to do. Mm. And so that's why I call it false control. It's not actually controlling what needs to be controlled it's controlling what you can see and what you can kind of put your fingers on in a sense is that a conscious thing do you think that people go into the that sort of situation where if if everyone could just do what i want i'd be happy is that the ultimate is that what they want or you know what's the purpose of that uh well you, people would think that that's what they want um yeah. emotional control is is absolutely fundamental imagine this right if you're walking around and you feel that you have no emotional control, which it basically means that you feel very vulnerable because anything could happen to you and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm. So it's it's always an accompaniment <clears throat> to any kind of problem like anxiety, panic, depression, uh, perfectionism. I mean, uh, let me just make the distinction. Um, uh, perfe- perfectionism is like um, it's a it's a. Uh, I like to think of it as a program running in the background causing things to happen. So 
a perfectionist program is running in the background so that you have to do things well, you have to have very high standards, and you're probably self-critical when you fail to meet them, which is common because your standards are so high. So that's a program, right? And a consequence of that can be things like depression, anxiety, panic, etc. So we make the distinction between like the, the outcomes, which are anxiety, depression, panic, and then, of course, the processes that create them, one of which would be perfectionism, another of which would be the loss of emotional control. So those two things are really powerful, and um, I commonly see them. When I talk, I mean, I talk to a lot of different people from uh, all walks of life, and I think the idea that weddings, you know, in this this current age, they've been blown all out of proportion. I suppose it comes from, uh, you know, the wedding industry. I, I I always say, David, I have this sort of wedding Illuminati theory that, of course, they want people to stress out and pay as much money as they can because that's their business. But the idea now that weddings have become these huge events where it's sort of a competitive industry and as soon as you get engaged, you're being told that you're not thin enough, things need to, you know, you need to spend a lot of money, you've got to invite all these extra people. People. there's a lot of pressure that's already put on you without even doing anything and it's not great especially you mentioned being self-critical and I think we're we're in that sort of situation where a lot of people are self-critical and then you add this extra pressure on top of it so this really interests me this topic because I think it's it's embedded in all of us um, especially sort of the millennial generation where it, this idea that you've got to spend 50 grand on a wedding to be happy it's it's pretty challenging for a lot of people Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've got a question it's more a bit of a statement here but I feel like it's a really good topic to to discuss with you today because I'm sure we can give people some solutions or at least get their head around why they might be feeling this constriction um, when it comes to thinking about their wedding and planning and and having this anxiety and this, this pressure to feel like they have to achieve something that maybe doesn't exist no absolutely but here's a question look uh, you said, uh, you know, as soon as you get engaged, you feel that there's a lot of pressure on you to have a 50 grand wedding. Okay. Mm. So you get engaged and you feel all this pressure. What is in control of you is the question. Uh, so, over to you. <laughs> that's a really interesting question. I mean, I personally, I, I, I will say on, on behalf of my audience that I think a lot of the time the pressure actually doesn't necessarily come from the finances. It comes from all the people around them and the questions and the expectations and the obligations. And to me, I see the feedback from our community in a lot of the time it's the emotional pressure probably more than the financial, but the burden of finances is certainly a huge factor. But I think it comes if we were hone in a bit more, that it comes a lot from people having expectations of what that day is going to be and what it means to them rather than just the couple involved. And I, I think that's where it all sort of starts to bubble up and starts to really affect people in a negative way. I agree. I think that um, we can draw just, well, we could probably draw three distinctions. The first one is that people have expectations themselves because yes. of, you know, the, the, the media and just, exp, you know, culture and society, if you like. Hmm. And then they, they expect, then are the, then they are the expectations they think that their friends and family have. Yes. They think that their friends and family have. And then there's the expectation, let's say, of the wedding industry, you know, whatever. Yeah. And all of those, those three things are just like happening to everybody. Uh, you know, you can't help it. Um, sometimes they're stronger and sometimes they're weaker. But the question then, I think, if I was um, you know, talking to someone who's in this situation, I'd say, 
Well, actually, let's drill down to the more fundamental. Um, what is the most important aspect of your day, let's say, okay? And they might say that, you know, we get married in front of friends and family and, okay, and what's the second most uh, important aspect? That the day goes well. What's the third most important aspect that, we, that we're, you know, it's a good start to our lives and we're happy. Now, you know, those are all reasonable things that people could say. None of it is, uh, and we have 3,000 pounds on flowers, None of it is that we have a, you know, a 120 plate uh, a dinner or reception, you know, that costs, yeah. uh, you know, 12 and a half thousand. And so the, the, the accompaniments are not attached, I think, to like the core desire of the day. Mm. They're, they're, they're add-ons in a sense for various reasons, I suppose. But the question going back to control is if, 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 if you're planning a wedding and you felt that you're in control of everything and that, uh, you know, you're working towards your sort of deeper purpose in a sense of having a nice day and <clears throat> getting married and all the rest of it, is it absolutely essential to have these things? Mm-hmm. And you might say, yes, in which case it's fine. But if you say, well, I've got to borrow 15,000 to have a wedding, you might say, well, actually it's not the best start. Yeah. So emotional control or feeling in control of events is a tool that you can acquire if you recognize that you need it. Now, nobody ever recognizes that they need it. They recognize that they've lost control, but they don't recognize that they need it until they've lost it as a general principle, I would think. How interesting. So how, okay, then, how do we get to the point where we think, oh, I think I'm going to go off the edge. <laughs> this is not good. Is there, are there signs that we can check in with ourselves or our partners and say, I think this is going too far. I think I'm. This is not working. Uh, absolutely, and it's really important, you know, to have like. I mean, it's just as a general principle, it's really important to have an open communication channel mm. uh, with your partner and you know people that are involved. I mean, a, a good sort of um, you know compassionate friend is really useful, particularly if we're talking about perfectionism. Um, do you want me to tell you a story which just illustrates the? Uh, the power of control and then i can yes, actually, yes, I, I, do. I can offer you i can offer your listeners a tool actually which works really well and it's <laughs> it works really well it's remarkable actually so can i tell you a story yeah okay yeah. <clears throat> years ago a woman came to see me and she said my house is very clean i said well how clean she said it's spotless i said uh, okay like have you got any ornaments or anything like that she says i've got three grecian goddesses got them in cyprus they've got pride of place on my mantelpiece I said, what would happen if one of those was just turned a little bit the wrong way? She said, it, it wouldn't be. I said, okay, here's your homework. Go home, turn an ornament a little bit the wrong way, leave it and report back. She came back the next week. I said, how did you get on? And she said, I felt sick for three days. No. The question is, what was controlling her? Things didn't fit in the way that she imagined them yeah, to fit, yeah. so it made her feel deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, you're a sophisticated thinker, Alicia, but keep it even simpler than that. What did she do? She did something that was against her, what she wanted. What did I ask her to do? What did I ask her to do? You asked her to change, make a change. No, I asked her to turn the ornament. (laughs) She turned the ornament and as a consequence, she felt sick for three days. What was in control of her? The ornament. Yes, the ornament. It's hard to get there, isn't it? Because it's just like, doesn't make sense. The ornament was in control of this lady. It sounds like she was Kathy Bates from Misery. What's going on? Did she later on, like, break the legs of an author? What's going on? This feels very intense for her. Uh, well, it turns out the whole house was in control of her because 
she had to clean the house for seven hours, seven days a week. So oh, you know, no. it's, a, it's an obsessive compulsive story. But the question then is, right, the ornament controlled her. How did the ornament get control of her? There's only two, there's only two possibilities. Well, one is it took it. The ornament took control of this lady. Mm. Does that seem reasonable? It, well, I mean, no, but yes, I suppose on this level. <laughs> do ornaments do that a lot? Do ornaments? I, don't, I mean, if, if they're possessed, maybe I don't know. I don't feel like it's it's got a. It's, it's, it's not Stephen King. No, no, the ornament can't take control <laughs> of the person. And yet, the ornament had control of the person. So how did it get it? It can't she take it. it. She allowed she it. Gave it. She gave the ornament control over her. She gave the whole house control over her. So she gave her control to the external circumstances of her life, and therefore she didn't have control. As soon as the external circumstances are not quite right, then she feels horrible because now all of a sudden she feels completely vulnerable. Mm. So if we translate this into a wedding, for instance, if if things are in control of you, if, if for instance, some some flowers uh, arrive and they're the wrong flowers, okay? Mm. And that makes you feel very upset. What's in control of you? The flowers. Just inanimate objects, yeah. Yeah, but inanimate objects can't be in control of you because, well, they just can't, right? No. And so what happens is, without realizing it, we give our power and control away to all sorts of things that are irrelevant to our power mm. Oh, right. So if you give your power and control away, the fact is you don't have it. Now, I won't go into the whole rigmarole, but basically everybody has all of the emotional power and control they need in their life and nobody and nothing can take it from them. And I generally say if you're a secret agent and you're captured by the baddies and you're determined not to give them your secrets and you're prepared to take the consequences, which probably means that you'd be tortured and killed. As long as you're prepared to take the consequences, no one can make you give over your secrets. So you have all of the power and control you need to achieve anything you want in your life. But if you give it away, you don't have it. I'm all G'd up so, now, David. I feel all G'd up. This is good. Okay. You're getting me all, this is good. All right. Control. So, yeah. <laughs> well, now, the interesting thing is that, that really nobody knows this. You know, it's, it's, you've probably had not had this conversation before. No one knows about power and control. Everyone's giving it away and, and taking it all of the time. Last time you drove a car and you saw a red light, what did you do? Oh, well, I just put my foot on that stop thing. Okay. The brake is called. <laughs> and when you when you see the, the amber light, what do you do? Speed up? Well, sometimes. <laughs> depends if there's a <laughs> – I should say responsibly, I would definitely be slowing down. But sometimes there's always a little bit of green in it. Yeah, well, you're in London. It's a different, different rules in London. Right. That's true. The, thing is, the red light is in control of you. And that's a good thing, right? The red light's in control of us all. Yes. The amber light, less so. But, you know, and we're all in agreement. So that's that's an example of external control. But um, do you want me to give you a really indelicate example? Please. Yeah. Well, OK. Um, next time you want to go to the bathroom to have a wee, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, just go there and notice that as you get closer to the bathroom and, and you get to actually see the, the, the stall, right, or the, um, the, the system, the toilet, yeah. notice Rate on a zero to ten scale how much you want to go. Like, oh, nine. Got to go nine. Now, walk, turn around, walk away, and walk as far away as you can from the toilet, and then rate how much you want to go. 
it'll be like six, five, four. <laughs> I've done this many times. I get people to do it. You know, I am mad. I won't be able. To, I won't be able to hold it. <laughs> Turns out you can. We are conditioned by toilet bowls to mm. want to go exactly the moment you get there. It's good. It's a good system. It works perfectly. It's called classical conditioning. It's you know like the Pavlov's dogs thing. It's yeah. it's perfect, but it's an example of control that you're not aware of. So. You know, power and control flows all over the place. And it's a really important element that we can easily sort of get keep control of rather than give it away all of the time. Now, David, you said you'd like to share some methods with us. Now, I'd like to hear that, but we're going to go to a very quick break. So after the break, we're going to talk about uh, anxiety in the lead up to weddings as well. And I, I've said, uh, hopefully David could share just some, and also just learn to enjoy it and not freak out about things that don't need to be freaked out about. This is the Bride Chiller Podcast. More after this. Okay, David, we are talking about control and anxiety and perfectionism. You uh, said before the break that you had some some methods of maybe helping us step into a, a more sort of mindful, calm way of dealing with this. Where are we at with that? With respect to perfectionism, let me just offer you a few kind of tools and thoughts or whatnot. And, and I've put together an eight-point sort of checklist, if you like, uh, oh, great. that you can find on my, my website. Um, it's called uh, so my website is drpurvis.com and it's called um how to not be perfect and still be brilliant <laughs> i like that and i will link in the show notes today to uh to this fantastic plan as well so we can all find it okay so uh, I, I think a really powerful way of approaching something like perfectionism and then i'll give you a tip for control in a bit is the first thing is this um perfectionists set really high standards for themselves much higher than they set for everybody else mm. and then they try to meet those high standards now because the standards are so high they often fail to meet them and they're very self-critical so perfectionism goes with really fierce self-critical voice now if a perfectionist does meet their standards they probably think that they haven't set them high enough so they're self-critical mm. about that so it's a it's a sort of a, a, a feedback loop that's going nowhere fast. So you never win. You that's never right. win. <clears throat> yep. So you're depending uh, you're depending on your own evaluation of how you're doing, and because you're heavily biased as a perfectionist in favor of uh, what you've always done, you know, like the force of habit, that you might not even see your, yourself doing it. You know. So one suggestion is this: find a trusted friend that you can use to calibrate your a perception against what they think so you what you think against what they think so in a sense you're bringing two heads to a problem and that then sort of opens up the narrowness and the tightness of the perfectionist thinking and it enables you to perhaps have a more balanced view of what's happening and it also is just the act of like speaking to someone who you trust and who is is sort of on your side you know can help moderate some of the more uh, self-critical um, aspects of perfectionism which brings me to a second one is because a perfectionist is likely to be very self-critical. They're likely to be like way more self-critical than they would criticize somebody else. So here's a simple one, right? If you wouldn't say it to another person, don't think it of yourself. Oh, good one. That's good. And because, you know, we're, we're fiercely negative about ourselves, but I wouldn't dream of saying that to them, to, to someone else. <laughs> and another one, look, 
it's um it's really interesting when you ask people to sort of describe the sort of the, the their critical voice you know it's often it can often be the voice of somebody else you know so it's, it's an imaginary voice if it's a woman it might be a man's voice you know it can be a, a mother's or a father's it's it's a voice and so try to develop a compassionate voice now i often i sometimes think of having like a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder typically the devil's on the left shoulder and the angel's on the right shoulder so the devil's saying, you know, it's all useless, it's, it's a failure, no one's going to like it, it's going to be a terrible disaster. What would a compassionate voice say uh, instead of, uh, well, what would a compassionate voice say to you instead? So you can use the, I would suggest, again, a voice of a close friend who loves you and cares for you. Mm. So they understand what you struggle with and how much you care about things. A perfectionist cares, really cares, perhaps too much, Okay. So this compassionate voice, this compassionate friend, they're speaking from a place of love, compassion. You know, they care about you and they're helping you to to see a more balanced viewpoint. And it's a different tone of voice. That's the important thing. Right. So so if you're talking to yourself, you talk to yourself as a compassionate and caring friend would talk to you in that kind of voice. You know, as opposed to being critical and harsh and, and sort of, uh, you know, very negative. It's. It's compassionate, it's loving, it's caring, it's supportive, and it's a it's a nice voice that you'd like to listen to. Mm. And that helps you to remain balanced and feeling, you know, a bit more in control. Another one, I I was gonna say I never met a perfectionist who was able to forgive themselves, but I'm sure that's not exactly true. But you know what? Learn to forgive yourself yes. for being human. Learn to forgive yourself for being human. So you would a perfectionist, you know, they're very caring and they're very like compassionate towards other people because they don't have the same standards. They don't apply the same standards to other people. So you'd forgive someone else for making a mistake. So you have to give yourself the same leeway, right? Because that's yeah. balanced. We always want balance, right? If you, if you forgive someone else, why not forgive yourself? Mm. So there's a couple. I've got a few more, but um, <clears throat> one is... Um, Perfectionism is a bit like a what's what I call a faulty thinking style. We said that it's all or nothing, right? It's black and white. It's perfect yeah. or it's failure. It's categorical, right? So it's this or it's that. Yes. But that's not right. Nothing's perfect and nothing's a failure. And everybody, even perfectionists, actually live in the bit in the middle. It's just that perfectionists are trying to achieve the P. They're trying to achieve perfect, but. And that burns them out because it's so much effort. Everybody lives in the bit in the middle. And so actually it's worth recognizing that and actually practicing living the bit living in the bit in the middle. And when I was writing the the sort of the notes for this, you know, I thought to myself, I should perhaps put a deliberate mistake in. <laughs> Just uh-huh. because, but then I thought I'd have to put in brackets, did you see the deliberate mistake? And then <laughs> a lot of people think they know what other people are thinking. Oh, you know, people won't like it. People won't come. People don't like me. People can see there's something wrong. I feel a bit of a fraud because people can see through me. You know, this is like like a social anxiety kind of cluster of thoughts. Um, I promise you that nobody can see in somebody else's mind, right? So I call that crystal gazing. It's like crystal ball gazing. And that's a faulty thinking style. And again, it's it's something that practicing uh, being aware of it and then recognizing it is a big, is a powerful one. And the final one is talking, people talk themselves down, right? Oh, I'm, yeah. Everyone's got like a, what I call an ant, an automatic negative thought. Oh, stupid. Oh, it's useless. Oh, you know, 
it's just automatic, just, just straight off the tongue. It's really worth stamping on those because as you speak, so you're here and, you know, if you say something about yourself enough, you believe it more and more. So those are kind of um, what I call faulty thinking styles. And it really, it's really worth kind of challenging them because if you don't challenge them, then you end up with the wrong answers, the wrong conclusions, ending up in the wrong place, doing the wrong kinds of things. So it's just not helpful. I love all those points, David, and they're also practical in the sense that we can take that from, you know, whether it's wedding planning or going to work or just standing on the train every morning thinking this through. And the idea, you are so right about the negative self-talk, and I think we've got a bit of a thing in in, in our household. I'm always like optimism only and not like blinded optimism, but whenever we're talking about the business, my husband and I are talking and, you know, if he, if he's, I'm always saying, if you're Debbie Downer, we don't do that in the house. We try and find good things to say. Cause I'm really of the belief that you, if you can't be your own cheerleader, then who else is, you know, no one else is going to do it in that sense. You've got to be the first to come to the party. So I'm, I'm so happy that you shared that and you reiterated that. Cause I think so many people don't do that and you need to be your number one fan and, that has sat in your own head, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you're spot on. I twist it a little bit just because of the nature of what I do. So <laughs> I say it's not acceptable to be negative, but then we don't want to be like particularly positive. We just want to be accurate. Sure. Right? You're not going to be delusional in your positivity, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest, if I was to say to someone, yeah, but you can't criticize yourself. Yeah, but I might get too big headed. So it goes black and white very, very quickly, you see. I'm, I'm a, so I say, well, actually, no, we want to be accurate. Yeah. Accurate's what we want. So do we have time to, can I give you a tool for power and control? Oh, we have plenty of time. You tell me. I think this is all great. And I know my listeners will be just sucking this all up because it's great information. Okay. Now, we have established in a previous uh, section of this uh, broadcast that an yes. ornament controlled a woman, Right. The ornament yes. controlled the woman. Do you remember? Right. Okay. And yes. we've established that ornament. Way. Not good. And Not good. Or- yeah. Ornaments can't control people. <laughs> and the ornament didn't take power and control from this lady, but she gave it. So now yes. the question is this, right? What's the secret of keeping all of the power and control you need? What would you oh think? Gosh, pl- please tell us. I, I Well, I su- does, does it start with all the things you just talked about? No, it's much simpler. <laughs> Nothing can take your power and control, but you can give it away. Choose to give it away, yes. Right. So that, that's that's the first thing. That's awareness, right? I am giving my power and control away. The second thing is, how do you remember to keep power and control? Now, if you want to get good at something, what must you do? Just practice it. Go over and over again. Right, right. So if you want to remember to keep power and control, given that you've not had this conversation before, you've got to practice remembering it. And I'm a big fan of practice. So I would get someone to say this. And this is a true statement. It's not like an over positive thing. I have all the power and control I need, and I don't have to give it away. Now, that is a true statement. If you follow the logic of of the stories that I've told, nothing can take it from you but you can give it away. If you keep it, you have all the power and control you need because nobody can make you do anything you don't want to do as long as you're prepared to take the consequences. So I have all the power and control I need and I don't have to give it away. We turn that into a little mantra exercise, right? And so we we say it like this. I, I mean, I can't model it for you, but in principle, you say it under your breath, but you move your mouth, you hear it with your ears and you think it, and you say it in a block of 10 like this, right? 
I have all the power and control I need and I don't have to give it away. I have all the power and control I need and I don't have to give it away. We do a block of 10. Mm -hmm. And then I would, I typically ask people to do 20 blocks of 10 in a day. 20 blocks of 10 spread out throughout the day. So that's 200 repetitions. Now, it takes six minutes to say that 200 times. The mm -hmm. important thing is that you spread it out. So it's you know, every more or less every 20 minutes, half hour throughout the day. And, you, and the trick is to remember to do it. And after a week, you have learned to retain your power and control. So if someone said to me, if I said to them, um, I'd ask, I ask this question. It seems like, sounds like a backward question, but I say, say I have all, um, say I feel in control. And they would say, I feel in control. I say, now how true is that for you? Zero, not at all true. Seven is completely true. They go, not at all true. Okay. Doing this exercise for a week, they would be, 50% more in control or more. That's how powerful it is. It's very simple. It's not positive thinking or anything. It's simply establishing what's true and practicing remembering it. And then... So it's, say, okay. so it's an awareness. You just repeat It's an awareness. You're becoming aware of what you're saying and then believing it? Well, you believe it through practice, but also right. you start to pay attention to the way that you'll give power and control away. So I would say, find five examples from your week where you have kept power and control instead mm -hmm. of giving it away. Mm -hmm. And it's remarkable, once you start paying attention to these things, how many examples you can find. You know, I mean, just it's just everywhere. And as soon as you start to recognize it, you see the way, you see the way that things affect you, the way that people try to take power and control, the yeah. way that circumstances do. So, you know, if you're talking about wedding uh, planning or, you know, uh, adverts, etc., the adverts are designed for you to give them power and control over you. And all of a sudden, True. you've got more control. So, so in principle, by retaining power and control, your listeners can have the wedding they want or more of the wedding they want and less of the wedding the industry, friends and family or other people want. And isn't that really kind of interesting? You can have more of the wedding you want by retaining power and control. It's the ultimate bride chiller move, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, yeah. Like, I was inspired, you see. I was listening to some of your previous podcasts and I thought, yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, David, I know we're, we're a little bit late on time, but I just wanted to see just in, in two to three minutes, not to rush you, or you can be longer. I'm not, I have nowhere to be. But uh, I wanted to just see if you could give us some tips, especially the final week of wedding planning. I see this so much in our Facebook group, the Bride Chiller community of people saying, needing calming mantras, needing support, feeling a little overwhelmed, my head might explode. Mm. And and we're not and they people refer to it as anxiety. And I'm sure some people have actual anxiety and some people are just extremely nervous and feel, you know, I, who am I to judge? I'm not the expert. But what are some of the things that we can do in the lead up to a, an event where we're feeling like that to actually dispel some of that and actually enjoy it rather than freak out? Would you think that you're talking about worry? Like, I think there's a, I think worry. I think there's a lot of like, is this going to go wrong? How am I going to have a good time? Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, well, um, as a shorthand, if you like, for, um, for for dealing with worry, worry is, um, well, let me ask you a question. Yeah. I worry that I will die. When will I find out? Uh, well, I worry I will die. When will I find out? I worry that the wedding. Die. I worry that the wedding won't go well. Where will you find out? I worry well, that, that the wedding, yeah. I worry that yeah. the won't turn up with a nice food. I worry that my uh, in-laws will argue. Where yes. will you find out? So worry is always based in 
the past, the present, or the future. It's in the future, right? So, yeah. So, in principle, you're with worry. You're asking your brain to solve a problem, answer a question, and the answer is actually based in the future. Therefore, it can't do it, and that's why worry goes round and round and round in circles because it's it's an impossible task. So, um, I, if you want to, if you want this, if your listeners want to get some tools that you can use and they're brilliant tools and they always work to stop worry, um, then my suggestion, to be honest, would be to go to my Panic Pit Stop app, which is free on the App Store or the, or the yes. Google Play Store. Just download the app and it's got videos of me um, giving you some brilliant tools to stop worrying. And that's the sort of the simplest thing to suggest in a way. It's there, it's free, and it's it's just, you know, it's easy to, easy to access and they're easy to use. So that would be the answer to that one. If you wanted a mindfulness uh, exercise, anxiety is always an overestimation of threat. Now, mm-hmm. you know, you think it'll be awful when I go. It'll be awful if I go to the party. After the party, you say, actually, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> and the reason being, in your imagination, you've got no strengths and resources. You've got no, um, you've got no experience. You've got no tools you can use. Whereas in actuality, when you go somewhere, you know, you've got experience, you've got conversation, you know, you've got all sorts of experiences in your life to, to bring to the party in a sense. So anxiety is always an overestimation of threat. Now, your imagination kind of captures this idea of, of threat and it runs with it, you know, and it's it can be hard to sort of pull yourself out of it, particularly when things are getting close, like a wedding or, you know. So I do this little exercise. I get people to put their, their feet flat on the floor so that so they, the, the, the soles of the feet are flat on the floor. And you roll your, your feet from the little toe, uh, you roll the toes inwards towards the big toe, and you try and feel each toe individually as you go. And then you go from the big toe back down the little toe, and then you go from the little toe back up to the big toe, and the big toe back down the little toe. That's 10 seconds on your toes. Yep. <laughs> and then you say, in this moment... There's nothing I need. I don't feel any anxiety. Yeah. In this Good. moment, there's nothing wrong with me. In this yeah. moment, there's nothing I need to fix. I don't have any problems to solve because in this moment, you don't. No. Just thinking about those toes. Yeah, exactly right. It's the grounding <laughs> exercise. You see, you feel each toe individually. And in this moment, there's nothing wrong with you. It's perfectly fine. Oh, that's a good one. Next time I do stand-up comedy, David, I'm going to think about my toes because yeah. I sometimes will think about going, do I know my lines? What am I going to do? How am I going to do it? And that would, I would become a bit obsessed with going out there and not remembering the first line. And then once I started, I was always fine. But it was that thing of just going, you're an idiot. You know it. Stop thinking about it. Ugh. Well, well anticipatory anxiety is the worst, isn't it? Because it's, it's always overdone. Yeah. totally yeah (laughs) and then you're fine (laughs) and we never learn from experience (laughs) well no we can we can learn from experience but we have to deliberately learn from experience because otherwise you're very prone to say i got away with it i was lucky that time yeah and the next time oh here we go again what's happening yeah well lucky for a lot of my listeners the wedding day is the day and then they can move on but i'm so grateful for this time david because i think you have given us so many tools and uh, just takeaways that we can use in our everyday life that's not necessarily attached to wedding planning as well. And I know that it's a, a really big topic that um, I'm really grateful that you've shared your knowledge and expertise. Now, if people want to get in touch, you mentioned we, we will put all of this information in today's show notes, which is our blog, which our lovely listeners can find at 
Chiller.com. But also you have a range of courses um, and I'd love for you to share where the easiest place for people to get in touch with you is and, and maybe join your community. I know you've got a good membership site as well going for people that want to pursue a, a little bit deeper. So whereabouts can people get in touch? Absolutely, yes. Um, well, obviously, there's the Facebook uh, page Dr. Purvis uh, online, and then there's a Facebook group Dr. Purvis uh, sorry Panic Pit Stop uh, support group. So that's easily found. Um, go to drpurvis.com, and you'll see um, all sorts of uh, videos, um, tons of videos, uh, blog posts, and also the courses. So my my kind of premier course right now is Panic Pit Stop. So which is a, you know, it's a like a really structured cognitive behavior therapy treatment strategy for panic, anxiety. And there are other courses that are around that for depression and mindfulness, etc. So, you know, drpurvis.com will find me and um, th- there's an email address there. And uh, you can always be catch me on the Facebook group and uh, on the Facebook page. So, yeah, I'm happy. Every- please come along and say hi. I'd love to hear from you. Oh, and I, I'm really grateful, and I know a lot of people listening will just be delighted in listening to this episode because I think there's so much they've learned, and I've learned as well, and I'm going to go away and think about my toes. <laughs> <laughs> ten seconds. Just, all it takes, 10 seconds on your toes. <laughs> when I have a minor panic, I'm just going to think about those toes. Yeah, yeah, Thank really. you so much. <laughs> Thank you, David. It's been great, and uh, I always like to end the show by saying happy days. The Bride Chiller Podcast, telling chair covers to get fucked since 2014. 